Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond talks to Tom Frieden, former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and former New York City Health Commissioner. They talk about the criteria that must be urgently met now in order to eventually reopen society in the next phase of the COVID-19 response. And they talk about his greatest fears as we move forward. Let's listen. Dr. Frieden, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I know a lot of people who are self-isolating, social distancing, are wondering how much longer we're going to have to do this. So talk to me about how those decisions will be made. It's understandable that people are asking the question, when can we go out again? I think it's important that we get clear that the more important question is, what do we have to do right now so we can go out as soon and safely as possible. And there, I think there are important things, particularly for governments to do. We have to make sure that we have better eyes on the virus, that we're understanding where it's spreading, how it's spreading, and how much it's spreading, so that when the transmission begins to ebb, we have the opportunity to think of gradually loosening the faucet and having people come out into society more while we keep back people who may be more vulnerable, older people and medically vulnerable people. The second key thing is our healthcare system. We have to do a much better job at protecting our healthcare workers and also ensuring that the healthcare workers can deal with large numbers of patients, both with less severe COVID disease and with more severe COVID disease and the need to continue caring for people with chronic illnesses. And third, we have to improve our public health capacity. In the next phase of this war, we're going to need to do testing and contact tracing on a mass basis. And that's very important. And it's not easy. It's an art and a science. It's high-tech and low-tech. And it raises very important privacy and confidentiality concerns, which we will have to address if we're going to be effective at doing this. So are there steps that individuals can take? Because I'm seeing there are some places in the United States where we haven't closed down, that people are still going about their daily lives. Does that potentially push off the opening for all of us? This is going to be different in different places and at different times. What's clear is that once the disease begins to spread widely in a community, it is more urgent than I can even express. You need to slam on the brakes of social contact. You need to physically distance immediately. Today in New York City, April 2nd, we're dealing with huge numbers of cases, healthcare worker infections, healthcare worker deaths, a huge increase in deaths. And if the decision to increase physical distancing had been made two days later, the burden would have been twice what it is because 
That's how fast cases were doubling every two days. But by the same token, if the decision had been made two days sooner, the burden would have been half. Speed is crucially important here. And for individuals, that means stay home, wash your hands, don't go out if you're sick, cover your cough, be very careful what you touch because this virus is spreading like a super SARS. It spreads in all of the same ways that SARS spread and more. And that means, yes, that it does last for some time on doorknobs, on elevator buttons. Yesterday, a report came out from Singapore where someone with the disease sat in one chair of a church and people who sat in that chair hours later got infected. So environmental cleaning is going to be very important. And all of us in society need to think about how we can increase physical distance while we decrease social distance and support each other as effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. You talked about how not everybody will sort of be allowed to go out at once. Can you talk to me about those sorts of decisions that need to be made? We need to be very careful about both when we reopen and how we reopen. The when will be when we meet very specific criteria for the disease not spreading widely and our healthcare and public health systems being ready to react when there are clusters of cases. That's for the when. For the how, we need to do it gradually to turn the faucet slowly rather than open the floodgates. And that means, for example, that people over the age of 60 People with underlying health conditions that increase their vulnerability may need to shelter in place for weeks or even months longer, not only to protect themselves, but to reduce the risk that our healthcare facilities will get overwhelmed. We will get back to a normal, but it will be a new normal, and some things will never change after this worst of this pandemic is over. What kind of things won't change? The things that I think will need to continue are the need to improve our hand hygiene, our cough hygiene, our sanitation, our cleaning of common areas because there is this risk. I think we'll need to drastically scale up our public health capacity to test, to treat, to isolate and quarantine. I think we're also going to need to greatly improve what we do in our healthcare system. There are already far too many infections that are spread in the healthcare system. And we need to make healthcare much safer than it is today. So the models for this are saying that a best case scenario is that 100,000 to 200,000 Americans will die. That would make it like the third leading cause of death from something that we hadn't heard of, you know, several months ago. Is this kind of that eventuality that public health folks have been worrying about for a long time? For decades, we've been very concerned about a pandemic of influenza, but we've also made clear that we can't predict what threat will come next. And there could be an even worse outbreak than this coming in the future. That's why it's so important that we invest in the systems to find, stop, and prevent health threats when and where they first emerge. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, we talked about testing a little bit. And as we know, there has been very little testing in this country, much less than we need to really understand the issue, what we're dealing with. 
is that going to have to be ramped up before we can start turning on the faucet? Testing is ramping up in this country, not nearly as fast as anyone would like, but there has been progress, though not nearly enough. As we enter the next phase, what we're calling the suppression phase of this pandemic, testing is going to be crucial and in very large numbers. I was just looking at numbers that are publicly available this morning for the number of tests that one city in China is doing, Wuhan, the hardest hit city. They're doing between 10 and 15,000 tests per day. Even now? Even now. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of effort that will be required to make sure we don't have another explosion of cases. Mm -hmm. Well, you talk about this explosion. I've seen um, people talking about a second wave. What could that mean? We don't know what's going to happen in China and elsewhere when people come out again and begin resuming regular social activities. There is one very encouraging analysis that shows that a lot of activity has resumed in China without an explosion of cases. But we can't assume that that's going to happen. And for that to happen, it's essential that there be very intensive, very accurate tracking of all cases and immediate contact tracing and follow-up to prevent a second large wave. We do think there will be continued clusters. That's what's happening in parts of Asia that are controlling this relatively well, that may be impossible to prevent because we can't currently eradicate or eliminate this virus. What we can prevent is a large second wave, and that's a big part of the effort. Mm -hmm. There's, I know, a lot of people who are working on trying to come up with both treatment and a vaccine. How likely is it a vaccine will work? And will that be the only way that we can really control this in the end? We hope there will be treatment fairly soon in the next few weeks or months. And that would be really important because not only would it save lives, but it would reduce the overwhelming nature of this for intensive care units around the country and around the world. A vaccine in a best case is going to take a year or two. We hope one will work. There is a pretty robust antibody response, so that's encouraging. But whether it will be protective, whether it will be safe, for how long it will work, we don't know. It's absolutely essential to pull out all the stops to try to get a vaccine made and available globally as soon as possible. Because as far as we know now, that is the major way that we would be able to control this. And until that happens, it's going to be very different and very difficult for us to get back to our previous level of activity. I'm worried myself about the hospitals, you know, we, we've been reading a lot about how overwhelmed uh, they're expected to be. In New York, for example, they are overwhelmed around the country. I know that um, hospitals are expecting a huge influx because of this. I'm curious about what if I get sick with something else right now? I mean, what is that going to be like? That's a key question, and it's very important to address because what we know in many outbreaks and epidemics is the number of people who die from the disruption of normal health care may be larger than the number of people who die from the disease itself. It's very important that we expand telemedicine and other ways for people to get care efficiently and well without risking themselves being exposed or further overwhelming or exposing 
healthcare workers and healthcare facilities. We have to really put healthcare workers front and center for any protection we can have, whether that's protective equipment um, in places like New York City, where the government is saying, don't come to the hospital unless you're severely ill, uh, making sure that people follow that advice. If there is a vaccine or a treatment, they should be first in line for it. The healthcare workers are our most precious resource. They're on the front lines of this battle. Far too many are getting infected, far too many are dying, and we need to do everything in our power to increase the safety of the environment in which they work. So it's really not just equipment that we may lack, but it's also the personnel who can help patients that need it. Absolutely. And that goes at every level. It's not just about stuff. It's about how we organize, how we work together. If you look at the issue of ventilators, which there's a risk of a shortage of, it's not just a ventilator and it's not just the equipment to maintain and operate the ventilator, but it's the people and the training to do that and do it safely. And that can be a big challenge. And similarly, for protecting healthcare workers, it's not just about protective equipment. It's about how we structure care. Do we, for example, have a tent outside where people with mild illness can be safely triaged in large numbers without exposing each other or healthcare workers? Do we ensure that healthcare workers are working in places that have enough space and ventilation that it reduces the risk they would be uh, infected? Are we ensuring environmental cleaning in ways that protect healthcare workers? There are a whole series of controls in addition to the protective equipment which may be getting underemphasized in some settings, but may be even more effective at protecting healthcare workers. Finally, I'm wondering what your biggest fear is at this point. That's a really hard question. Right now, I think all of us who are involved in any way are working around the clock to think of how can we meet the three goals of reducing the number of infections, reducing the number of deaths from infection, and maintaining societal integrity and functioning and economy and support to the greatest extent possible. And to me, the biggest challenge of this is the incredible speed with which it is moving within communities and around the world. And my fear is that we just won't keep up, that this virus is moving much faster than we're able to. And because of that, many people who would otherwise not be affected by it, not die from it, may sadly perish. Tom Frieden, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.